understanding the doctrine of Christ and strengthening our testimony is a labor that will bring real joy and satisfaction. We need to consistently study the words of Christ as found in the scriptures and the words of living prophets. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what you should do. Studying is then another essential key to become a better disciple of Jesus Christ. Prayer and scripture study go hand in hand. They work together for our benefit. This is the process that the Lord has established. To feast means more than to taste. To feast means to savor. We savor the scriptures by studying them in a spirit of delightful discovery and faithful obedience. When we feast upon the words of Christ, they are embedded in the fleshy tables of the heart. We've got chapters 12 through 24 uh, of Genesis, and then also Abraham 1 and 2. And it's kind of interesting because I think a lot of the modern day revelation that we have is helped helped out by Abraham 2 more than any of the other chapters. But just kind of clarifying some of the things that happen in those in chapters like 12 and 13 and whatever of Genesis, there's a lot of reference to what happens in Abraham 2. I, I thought it was interesting that Abraham's story begins with we well he's kind of surrounded in a very wicked environment, uh, and in the lesson there's a quote by President Dallin H. Oaks that says uh, President Dallin H. Oaks taught the importance of having righteous desires, and he says as important as it is to lose the the lose every desire to sin for sin. Eternal life requires more. To achieve our eternal destiny, we will desire and work for the qualities required to become an eternal being. If this seems too difficult, and surely it is not easy for any of us, then we should begin with a desire for such qualities and call upon our loving Heavenly Father for help with our feelings. I really like that quote because it um, reminds me a lot of in the Book of Mormon when it talks about charity. Like if how great it is, how you should be possessed of it. But if you don't even have it, you should just pray or have no desire. You should just pray for the desire to have it, you know? Yeah. And there's a that that Book of Mormon passage has impacted me in my life quite a bit because sometimes I look at myself and I'm like, there's the things I know I should do, and then there's the things I feel like I want to do. And those are two separate things. And sometimes a prayer can be as simple as, I don't want to go to church, but I need to pray for the desire to go to church. You know, mm. I need to pray for the desire to read my scriptures or pray for the desire to have a desire to pray. You know, um, I think often we think that by by not, uh, what's it called, by not facing or being honest about what our desires are, that somehow the Lord has no idea. like, And it's like, no, he knows exactly how you feel. He knows exactly what's going on. But when we're honest about our desires and want to align our desires and just pray for our desires to be different, um, he helps us, you know. It's uh, it's it's the difference between saying, saying a prayer that we think sounds nice 
and saying a prayer that actually comes from the heart. And maybe it's not all polished and it doesn't sound great, but it's the truth. Yeah. I think one of them will help us more than the other. And I like that with Abraham, he's in this scenario where he has some desires. And, and in the lesson, there's a couple questions where it says, uh, one of the first ones is, what are his desires? Is if um, What challenges did Abraham face? And what message do these verses have for those, for our family members and for ourselves? Um, and so when we go to the scriptures, we will see a little bit more about what Abraham's desires were. Yeah, I I found this quote um, in a book called Unlocking the Old Testament by Ed J. Pinniger and Richard J. Allen. And they're talking about kind of where Abraham comes from, and especially in reference to Abraham chapter 1. They say, Abraham survived a youth fraught with abuse and danger. Similarly, the challenges and adversities of life give us training and experience in those qualities of faith, persistence, resilience, and problem solving that make us better able to carry on the Lord's errand. Abraham had within his heart the vision of future service through the, through the priesthood of God. However, his circumstances stood at odds with his hope and yearning to be a valiant servant. Abuse, evil, ignorance, cruelty, superstition, false gods, all of these conspired to thwart his, his mission. Thus, he had to depend on faith and on the Lord for his own safety and deliverance. His experiences were to prepare him for future challenges and tests that established him as the father of many nations and the great patriarch of coming generations. Just like Joseph Smith in our day, Abraham had to tread the path of sacrifice that the Savior so willingly trod in bringing about the atonement. Thus, we see that dealing with adversity is truly the test of life. Our Savior endured it all, submitting to the Father's will. The prophet Joseph Smith in this dispensation endured all things, and then martyred him at the age 38. Now, each of us in our own way will be tried and tested by adversity and opposition in all things. We too must endure, not just endure, but endure to the end and endure well. I think that's interesting because oftentimes we think about Abraham as being this, this prophet, this guy that has, you know, he's mentioned by not only Christianity, but also by Islam and by Judaism. And he's a heavy hitter in history, not just in religion, but people know about Abraham. But how much do we think about what he came from and the situation where he came from? You know, when everyone around him was worshiping these false idols and stuff, and he was like, I, I need to reach out to my God and and be able to serve my God the way he expects me to, even within that whole circumstance. So it shows his character, but it's also a perfect example for us that regardless of our circumstances, all of us have the potential to be great. In Abraham, in the, in the Pearl of Great Price, Abraham chapter 1, verse 2 through 3, it kind of explains a little bit about kind of this turning point where Abraham, what are his desires, what is he wanting, and and so in, in verse 2, it says, In fighting, there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me. I sought for the blessings of the fathers. And the right whereunto I should ordain, be ordained to administer the same, having been myself a follower of righteousness, desiring also to be one who possessed great knowledge, and to be great, a greater follower of righteousness, and to possess greater knowledge, and to be a father of many nations, a prince of peace, and desiring to receive instructions. And to keep the commandments of God, I became a, I became a rightful heir, a high priest holding the right belonging to the fathers. It was conferred upon me for, 
from the fathers. He came down from the fathers from the beginning of time, yea, even from the beginning or before the foundation of the earth down to the present time, even the right of the firstborn or the first man who is Adam or his first father through the fathers unto me. So <clears throat> first of all, it says fathers a lot in there. <laughs> Second of all, I think I thought it was interesting that what Abraham saw was greater happiness, greater peace, and he saw greater knowledge. And I, I've often thought, like, it seems like he already possessed some of those qualities, but the knowledge he had led him to want more knowledge, you know? And, and it took me a while to think about this, because later on we find out that Abraham pays tithing to Melchizedek. Mm-hmm. And we know that Melchizedek was probably one of the greatest individuals of all time, that he was like unto the Savior, that he was so righteous that through his teachings in this land called Salem, that was very wicked, he was able to teach and change the hearts of those people to become very righteous. Yeah. And that even, even as Abraham receives a new name with God of Abraham and Sarah receives a new name of Sarah, that even this place, Salem, received a new name of Jerusalem because of the change and the mighty, mighty change that occurred. And so there's definitely like, there's definitely a lot more that probably has occurred that we don't know. But for me, it's, it's, I find myself that do asking myself, do I, do I desire these similar things? There's something to be admired about Abraham in in the fact that he wanted to receive more knowledge, more righteousness, which ended up for being, he received the greater priesthood. He received, was ordained to a high priest, which that knowledge gave him more responsibility, you know? Yeah. I don't know. It's almost like he had his heart in the right things. I want greater happiness, peace, and be a follower of righteousness. And because of that, the Lord prepared him and gave him more responsibility. I think sometimes we tend to do things the opposite way. We tend to seek responsibility and titles, but maybe not so much for greater happiness, peace. You know, the preparation that that goes into these things. I don't know. I I was just, I really like those Verses because I thought that Abraham, he, he's coming from an area that is very wicked. They're definitely doing human sacrifices. They're definitely, in the scripture, tells us that they're trying to mimic the way of the patriarchs. They're trying to mimic the priesthood. And it even talks about the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh of Egypt is descended from Ham. And the Pharaoh was a righteous man, but he did not hold the priesthood. Like he tried to do right by his people but he did not hold the priesthood. Yeah, I think I think it's because he was in that scenario and because he he was brave enough to say um I'm going to call out and and represent the Lord rather than just go along with everything that's going on around me that he gets the Abrahamic covenant. That the Lord looks at him and says, you know, I'm going to I'm going to build the future on you because you've got all of this working against you, and yet you still sought me out. You still cried out to me when they were trying to get you to do all these other things. And I think it's just helpful to kind of outline what exactly are the promises in that covenant. Number one, a promised land for him and his posterity, right? You will have a, a, this promised land. In, I believe it was the land of Canaan, wasn't it? He was promised, um, which is 
as I understand it, another name for modern day Palestine. Um, two, the blessing of numerous posterity. So you'll have tons of children and grandchildren and on and on for generations. Three, a right to the priesthood for yourself and your righteous posterity. So the, the priesthood will be with you as long as you're worthy, and those of your posterity that are worthy will also have it, a right to it, um, which I found was interesting. And four, the right and responsibility to preach the gospel to all the world, thereby blessing all nations. So the right and responsibility, which are, are two very important and very distinct words, right? You have the right to do it. You also have the responsibility to carry that out. And then lastly, uh, salvation and exaltation. The Lord promised him in the last day that he would be exalted. And in turn, Abraham promises to be obedient to the commandments of the Lord. And I think that when you look at it, it's like, is are we getting a, a ridiculous deal out of this? Because all we have to do is say we're going to follow the commandments and be obedient and we get all of this other stuff because we as descendants and heirs to Abraham were also promised these things, right? Yeah, I, I like to think about the scripture that God is no respecter of persons. Mm -hmm. And I also like to like tie that into in the Book of Mormon where, where he says, um, those who keep the commandments are favored of the Lord. So our ability to be covenant people and to receive blessings of the Lord are more dependent upon our alignment to him than upon a predestination that he has selected certain people that are um, more righteous than others or get an opportunity than others. It has more to do with our agency and our desire to be followers of righteousness, to seek knowledge, to want peace and happiness. Now, that is greatly affected by our environment. It's greatly affected by our parents, our culture, our traditions passed down to us. And there's a certain amount of wickedness going on here that is, I mean, it talks about, it says, <clears throat> the land of the Chaldeas, uh, that they were offering to strange God men, women, and children, you know. And then the way that they would select the ones they offer, it seems to be in that uh, there's an example here of uh, three virgins, and they were daughters of Onida, and they were royal descendants from the loins of Ham, and they were offered up because of their virtue, because they would not bow down to worship the gods of woods and stones. So it's almost like Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, you know, very similar. They weren't going to bow down to these false gods. Um and so they were offered as sacrifice. And then and then Abraham says, and it came to pass that the priests laid violence upon me, that they might slay me also, as they did those virgins upon the altar, that they may have a knowledge, um, that you may have a knowledge of the altar. So then he goes and explains about the altar. But um, it's, I, I find, <laughs> I wonder, okay, this is a weird part, but I wonder if um, the the sacrifice you know, human sacrifice is not a good thing. But we often talk all of these commandments, and at this time they're looking forward to a sacrifice, which is God sacrificing his son. And I often think about how cultures or civilizations, they just get out of, out of, out of, unaligned with God. They get out of whack. 
and how much of this was it's almost like the law of Moses when it was given to Moses it always pointed to be a symbolic sacrifice of Christ but when we enter years later around Jesus's time we know that the symbolism was lost it was kind of warped into a way of 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 people controlling each other and being Pharisees and all that stuff, right? So I wonder some of that. And so I, I've been thinking a lot about this chapter about the descendants of Ham and how it talks about a curse and how they don't get the priesthood, they can't hold the priesthood. But but with the priesthood, and, and there's several talks about individuals not being able to hold the priesthood. And either through lineages or through in, in those lineages, they are marked. It happened in the Book of Mormon with with a darkening on the skin. It happening to the descendants of Ham in the scriptures. And I'm curious. So the thought that I have arrived is not an answer. It's more of a question. But I think like Abraham in his story, he he seeks righteousness, happiness and to do good. And the byproduct of that is that he is prepared to receive the priesthood. In in the scriptures, it tells us quite a bit that no man can take this honor unto himself, meaning you cannot take the priesthood. You cannot decide that you have it, and you also can't exercise unrighteous dominion. And I'm curious about if some of these cultures or lineages are just different ideologies on that where one understands that the priesthood comes from God and therefore we have to do these prerequisites and another one tries to take it. And because they take it, they are like in these um, scriptures where they're trying to emulate the order of the patriarchs, where they're trying to emulate the priesthood. And because of that, they can have, they can have all the outward manifestations, but they have no power. There is no priesthood, you know? Mm-hmm. And I wonder how much of that these these curses aren't a curse of biology, but it's a curse of ideology that follows certain cultures until they're prepared to have that broken. And the story that reminds me of that is the anti-Nephi-Lehites. They had this this culture of war and maybe even idolatry and murder and, and, and all these things. But when they were prepared and Ammon came, they they could cast all that false tradition off and join and be full-fledged, you know. And so maybe some of the thoughts here on why civilizations, some are allowed and some aren't and some are marked and some are separated and some have to travel to new promised lands, is more to do with our ability to be prepared and the, uh, the amount of in the Book of Mormon, it's called the false traditions of our ancestors that gets passed. You know, so I don't I don't know how much of that is useful, but to me, I it started feeling really well in comparison to Abraham, because Abraham, what he sought led him to greater knowledge and to the priesthood, and he's living in a time when they have tried to replicate all that and kind of force it, and I think the Lord is doesn't take kindly upon that you know it it doesn't work that way you know so although this can be a tale of civilizations it really is about us personally like the the knowledge that i seek in the gospel and how to live my life am i seeking that correctly in a way that it's going to bless me or do i think i got it figured out 
do I try to imitate righteousness? And as I imitate righteousness, there is a literal darkening to the light in the Holy Ghost. And it can actually lead you to apostasy, you know, which happens quite a bit, you know. Um, what, one thing I was thinking about with Abraham is you look at him and he's living at the same time as Melchizedek. And like you said, Melchizedek was a really awesome guy. And I found this um, thing that kind of calls out, it's written by Seeley uh, about the Joseph Smith translation. He says, the Joseph Smith translation provides additional 16 verses in Genesis 14 that preserve the details. As a child, Melchizedek had such faith as to stop mouths of lions. He was ordained a high priest after the order of the Son of God. He was a prophet like unto Enoch, who had power through his faith over the elements, over the nations of the earth, and the power to stand in the presence of God. In addition to his biblical title, King of Peace, we learn Melchizedek was called by his people the Prince of Peace, identifying him as a type foreshadowing the ministry of Jesus Christ. And I think, okay, so if Melchizedek is there, who's arguably one of the most obedient, most righteous, and upstanding people ever, we have a priesthood named after him, for heaven's sake. Why was it the Abrahamic covenant? Why wasn't this covenant given to Melchizedek? He had all the credentials, right? He had all of the whatever. He was arguably a better guy all around <laughs> from a better background and a better situation than Abraham. But it was given to Abraham, a guy who had to run away from becoming part of an idolatrous group, who had to uh, struggle in, in many ways with uh, a brother-in-law and such that wanted to live in Sodom and do a lot of the things that were happening in Sodom and Gomorrah like he had to he, he did not come from an ideal situation he was not like clearly this guy is going to be the father of multitudes right and I just find it really interesting that the Lord would say yeah I'm it, it's going to be you Abraham I know Melchizedek's there and he's doing his thing and he, he's doing what I need him to do but Abraham you are the one I'm going to promise all of this stuff to hmm. and it makes me think like how our our personal desire and our personal intentions of being obedient and following the commandments, we don't know what the Lord has planned for us. Melchizedek, I'm pretty sure, was not like jealous of Abraham getting the Abrahamic covenant. I'm pretty sure Melchizedek understood the gospel well enough to be like, yeah, that's awesome, dude. Keep it up. I'm going to keep doing what I've been asked to do, too. There was no there. Was, it's not like Melchizedek got cheated out of something he deserved or anything like that. But the Lord wanted Abraham to do it. Well, I think I think the covenants that everyone enters into, we call them the Abrahamic covenant, but in reality, it's the covenant that the Lord makes with us. Right. So it could be called the Daniel covenant. It could be <laughs> called the Melchizedek covenant. And I think one of the reasons maybe Abraham is selected to remain the historical figure for this covenant okay. might be because of his because he came from the opposite place of righteousness, a place full of idolatry, terrible parenting, it sounds like, um, <laughs> you know, not the ideal family, um, bad neighbors, probably terrible political strife, you, you name it. And the Lord was able to take him because he had righteous desires and make him mighty in the in the father of many nations. Right. In I think the Lord enjoys showing his power in extreme situations. 
because we're about to go into another extreme situation about Abraham. I promise you posterity innumerable, but you don't have a kid and your wife is barren. So where do we go from here? And we'll see that through that story, it's all with the Lord, nothing is impossible, you know? Everything and his blessings are sure. And so if I were to think, oh, you know, these scriptures, what do they tell us? Why is Abraham chosen? Why, you know, why are these extreme situations? Well, our lives are full of extreme situations in the sense that sometimes we feel, we may not understand what righteousness feels like. We may not understand what revelation feels like. We might not understand what a testimony of the law of chastity or, you know, these things could be so foreign to wherever we're starting out learning about these things. But through the Savior, those things could be things that become tremendous blessings in our lives. You know, just like for Abraham, you know, living in a land where it's so full of idolatry and wickedness, one day you will have so much peace that people will want to follow you. So I don't know. I That's kind of like why I like that it's Abraham. That, that, that yeah. Because of his story, it's like, man, if you can do that with him. Yeah. And, and the thing wasn't that Abraham was chosen. He sought these things, you know. And, and when we seek righteousness, we are we then are become chosen. It's not an exclusivity of predetermined outcomes here. In Doctrine and Covenants 4, it tells us, um, you know, when, when we're talking about, you know, who's chosen to proclaim the gospel. Well, if you have a desire, you are called to the work. There's that word again. If, if you just have the desire, you're called to the work. Well, this and, is definitely and, a situation of that where, I mean, it's a guy, like you said, I think the Lord likes to be able to show to all of us, listen, this guy had everything up against him, but he had the right desires. His, the desires of his heart were pure. And I promised him the following, and the same applies to all of you. And don't put limitations on what I can and can't do. I can take anyone from any circumstances if they have the right desire and make them father of multitudes. Right? And he could have taken Melchizedek and said, okay, Melchizedek, you're going to be the father of multitudes. I'm going to make this promise with you because you're such a great guy. But instead, he, even though the, all of those promises probably applied to Melchizedek as well, he didn't make those covenants with him directly. He made them with Abraham. And it, I, like you said, I think it's to kind of show us there are no limitations to what I can do. Show me your desires. Show me the pure intent of your heart, and I can make it happen. It's very similar to when Christ came to the Americas and he called his 12 disciples, which are different than the 12 apostles. But then he gave us the Beatitudes and he gave us the exact same thing that they were given here, that they were given there to a people that probably had no idea (laughs) who, who these other individuals were, you know, they were separated, but his pattern continued pattern that, Hey, I'll call 12 here. They'll witness they'll govern, they'll teach. And what I'm going to tell you to follow is the same principles I told them over there. And so very similar, you know, the covenant that Abraham receives is the same covenant we receive. The same covenant that when individuals read about 
the Book of Mormon and they seek out the missionaries and then they become baptized, they now become adopted into the Abrahamic covenant, which is to say that it's almost like the Lord is is so, he wants everyone to feel like Abraham. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like this, this mighty change, this, you know, there's a part in here where, um, when in Abraham chapter two, um, in verse eight, where the Lord st- starts, my name is Jehovah and I know the end from the beginning. Therefore, my hand shall be over thee and I will make thee a great nation and I will bless thee above measure and make thy name great among all nations. And thou shall be blessed unto thy seed after thee, that in their hands they shall bear this ministry and priesthood unto all the nations. And I will bless them through my, thy name. For as many as receive this gospel shall be called after thy name and shall be counted thy seed and and shall rise up and bless thee as their father. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse thee that curse thee. It's interesting because a lot of this I see in the temple ceremony as well. The promises and covenants that we make there and the things that are promised and covenant to us is the same principle that we can bless our posterity through these righteous living the gospel, you know, through keeping the commandments of the Lord. And it's it's interesting because if the ultimate if the ultimate design well, if the plan of salvation is designed to provide us with experiences and lead us back to the presence of our Heavenly Father. And you know, all of these covenants in the gospel of Jesus Christ and his commandments are there to help us and refine us and get us back to the Father. And we left the Father with good knowledge, but ignorant of good and evil. And we come to earth to gain that knowledge of good and evil and exercise our agency so we can return back to the Father and now be with him and understand good and evil. You know what I mean? Well, it's all this kind of like, it's the righteous desires, it's the obedience, it's all of that stuff that gives not only Abraham the opportunity for these blessings, but also gives us the opportunity for these blessings. And it's also kind of what the whole situation in Sodom and Gomorrah was devoid of. No one in Sodom and Gomorrah had any interest in following the commandments of God. They were doing their own thing. They were being very wicked on multiple different fronts. Um, And... Abraham tried his best right, to to save the city by saying, you know, can we can we find a few less people that are righteous? How about just a couple other people that are righteous? And the Lord's like, sure, go for it. Um, you're not going to succeed there. It's, this has got to happen, Abraham. And eventually it's like, OK, can I at least get, you know, Lot's family out of here with me? And they leave. Uh, and it's interesting to me because you always think that, like, he was trying to take Lot with him and his family with him because they were righteous. And it's not necessarily the case. They He took them with him because they were related. Um, and I think he felt a responsibility to help them and to give them the opportunities to survive. But quickly, you kind of find out where Lot and his family's heads are at. I mean, they were told to leave and not look back. And his wife looked back. And she looked back not only like, hey, I just want to see what's going on. But looked back like, oh, my gosh, we're leaving our home in Sodom and 
my friends and, you know, whatever, the longing, looking back at, you know, what she was giving up. And the Lord was basically saying, you're giving up evil. Don't go, don't look back and, and long after your home. You know, this this is gone. And so when she did that, that's why she was, you know, turned into a pillar of salt. It was because you are looking back, wishing for that which you're giving up. Yeah. And I think, you know, nobody today is getting turned into pillars of salt. But I think that we kind of do that sometimes when we're when we have made big changes in our lives. But we kind of look back and say, oh, man, if only I could still do this or I, I miss this a little bit of my previous life or whatever. Like you got to get. Um, what I think Elder Maxwell called your foot out of Babylon, right? You can't have one foot in Babylon and one foot in Zion. It goes on where they get to the point where they're going to camp. And uh, in Genesis 13, 12, Abraham dwelled in the land of Canaan. Lot dwelled in the cities on the plain and pitched his tent towards Sodom. And um, Randall Chase wrote uh, in a book called Making Precious Things Plain. He said their tent doors were oriented toward the temple so that he's talking about in King Benjamin's address. Their tent doors were oriented toward the temple so that families could remain in their tents and hear the words which King Benjamin should speak unto them. The direction in which tents were pitched revealed what people valued. For example, contrast these people with Lot, who pitched his tent toward Sodom. At first, Lot only lived near the wicked city of Sodom, but he pitched his tent toward the city, and eventually he and his family lived in the city of Sodom itself. And it kind of goes to show that this is how Satan tends to work, where he won't say, hey, go do this bad thing. But he'll say, hey, look at that. Isn't that kind of, no, that's interesting. And then get you closer and closer and closer to it until you, he involves you in it. And leaving that, turning away from it, it has to be a lot more abrupt a situation. It's kind of like a forsake your sin, right? Yeah. Turn away from it for good. I was thinking similarly to Lot's wife leaving Sodom, Laman and Lemuel leaving Jerusalem. Yeah. Uh, what about our riches? How can that great city be destroyed? Our father, his vain imaginations. Here we go again. You know, you know, very similar. And now there's a quote in the lesson by Elder Jeffrey R. Holland that says, apparently what was wrong with Lot's wife was that she wasn't just looking back. In her heart, she wanted to go back. It would appear that even before she was past the city limits, she was already missing what Sodom and Gomorrah had offered her. She did not have faith. She doubted that the Lord's ability to give her something better than she already had. It, that The last part of that um, quote where he says she did not have faith. She doubted the Lord's ability to give her something better than she already had. Yeah. So not to say that Sodom and Gomorrah, it was like a den of thieves and there was like sewage running through the streets and people just. It was probably nice. There are probably a lot of benefits of living in a city as opposed to living in like a tribal nomad uh, villages society. That, Definitely. That, you know, we know that um, when when Laman and Lemuel referred to Jerusalem, they were always referring to their comforts and their riches. You know, not only is it the Lord saying get away from a place that's wicked, that's going to corrupt you or that has corrupted you, but also what appears to be comfort in your comfort zone, I need you to trust me because you're going to be in a better place. And that's the part of the story that I can relate to more is situations where the Lord invites me to leave my comfort zone. Live, leave this area where he says, 
my ability to believe that the Lord can give me something better than what I already have. It's the same principle that causes the, the, the parable of the talent individual to bury the one talent because they don't want to lose it. And the other ones, they kind of invest them and use them and make more. Um, so I, I thought that was very interesting because, you know, Lot's wife, we'd like to think, oh, she, she was, don't be like, but I think I find myself being more like that than, than, than any other. That I keep thinking, oh, I should have done this or it would have been better. Or I've even had individuals, and this is probably jokingly, but it's like, you know, where, where much is given, much is expected. It's sometimes used for, you know, the gospel. And and so people tend to say, well, ignorance is bliss. That's why I just, I'd rather not know. And it's like, well, we also cannot stay in a state of ignorance. Right. We have to, like Abraham and like all these individuals in the scriptures, seek after righteousness. It's not enough not to do sin. We also have to go and do good. The other thing I found interesting about Abraham's reaction to to the news that his initial reaction was, Oh, you know, is there something we can do about it? You know, what about Lot? What about righteous? What they can't, they can't all like his reaction wasn't, you know what? It's about time. Send that fiery <laughs> ball from heaven. Throw Those the book at sinners. They, they deserve what they're getting. You know, it, it's funny that these great leaders of the scriptures are great leaders because they have such great compassion, such great desire to help others. And it's mostly because they become like the Savior. At a time when we, Sodom and Gomorrah, are used like two examples throughout history as the pinnacle of wickedness, um, we have Medgesdek going around, being called the Prince of Peace. Like the, the Lord provides an opposite amount of positive counterbalance. And we're told that in our day. We're told that in our day, we are living in times that are more wicked than Sodom and Gomorrah. And just like President Nelson has told us many times, and President, um, all of our prophets, you know, have, have kind of told us that just as the, the, the Satan's power increases and his influence and iniquity increases, so does righteousness. So more temples are made, more uh, gospel library is made available instantaneously. The, the news or the good news of the gospel is made even more accessible to people. And and so just it's not always like the Lord, I think, in just in, in also in the time of Noah, it's not his first reaction isn't let's wipe them out. Right. You know? And 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 it shouldn't also be ours if we are his disciples. He sends prophets. And in in, in Isaiah it tells us, How many times did I go gather you, Israel? How many times like a hand gathers your chicks? How many times in Always, always his reminder is before he got bad, before you're in the situation that you're mourning, being subjugated to to the Babylonians or being scattered. How many times did I come and you would not have me, yeah. you know, and it's kind of the same. Like we, we just need to acknowledge that that um, as the, that as we get closer to the Savior, our bowels should be filled with mercy as well. Well, I think it's important to understand that. You know, what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah was not that much worse than what's going on today. Um, there's there's a lot of the same things that are happening in our world. And it's it's more of like, where are you aligned? What are your what are your personal actions involved in? 
are you on the side of just kind of going with whatever the world pushes at you or are you able to say i'm not going to do that i'm not, i'm going to i'm going to reject that thing as being normal i don't care if it's normal or not i i don't i'm not going to participate or i'm not going to support that um i think that's kind of what it comes down to and the lord is not coming and saying i'm going to destroy an entire city now but what he is saying is hey listen the, these are the last days now is the time to prepare to meet God. And it's more on an individual basis than like, okay, this whole city, they're done. You know, <laughs> like that's not happening anymore. But the choices that we have to make are still the same. The choices that we have and that Abraham had are still the same. Are you going to go with the flow and allow all of this to happen and even participate in it? Or are you going to be a, a source of light and, and work against it? So I, I really do want to talk about obviously the probably the biggest story the most famous story from these chapters which is uh, the sacrifice of abraham and isaac as far as i know was only carried out so that abraham and isaac both could and then eventually us through the scripture could better understand the sacrifice of jesus christ it was a test of their faith and willingness but it was also a, a lesson teaching them what it would be like to potentially have to give your only begotten son. This is after the whole ordeal with Sarah not being able to give birth, um, that she was barren and getting older. And I, I think that, that Sarah has gone through this whole um, ordeal of being, Abraham's received this promise that he's going to be father of multitudes and Sarah herself probably feels a little bit like that's cool, but I can't have children, you know, <laughs> like, how's this going to work out? And I think that's part of the reason why she brought another woman into the equation, because it was like, maybe this woman can bring you your posterity that you're promised. And because I can't. And sure enough, they have a son. Right. And it's probably like, OK, well, I guess. I, I just I can't help but think what she might have been going through at that time. She She's the first wife, which, you know, has a, a position of authority over the other wife, but yet can't have children. And it says in the scripture somewhere, I can't remember which verse it is, that when, when Hagar has her son, that she despises Sarah. And really, the translation is kind of like, well, she... Her position and authority over her as a first wife was diminished by the fact that she couldn't have children and Hagar could. And so for Sarah, I'm just I'm just imagining what this is like. And then they're promised a son, and sure enough, Isaac is born. And it's her they're old, you know, it's a miracle that they're able to even do this at all. But then fast forward a few years, and there the Lord then asks. Abraham to go and sacrifice Isaac. And my first thought as I was reading it this time around was, what about Sarah? Because we always talk about this sacrifice that, you know, Abraham had to take his only son and that Isaac was not a young boy. He was probably a young man. He was at least mature enough to know what was going on. He was not like, okay, whatever. You know, he, he probably knew what was happening. But what about what Sarah is going through in this moment? The only child she's been able to have, this miracle son, is now being taken to be sacrificed. Is this not a test of her faith, too? Is this not a test of her to be like, uh, so wait a second. 
you were promised to be the father of multitudes and we were promised a son and now my son is going to be sacrificed mm-hmm. and i don't i don't have any i'm not even a, like i'm not even going to be there when it happens like like i don't know i just think that's something that we often kind of don't think about we think about what's happening with the two men that are there at the sacrifice and not really thinking about how this woman went through a lot just to be able to have this child now he's potentially going to go away i have two thoughts one is kind of how full circle the story has come about like we know that there were human sacrifices right the lord that was wicked not right abraham himself they sought to kill him and sacrifice him as well um for these false gods and then it comes full circle to now abraham having received greater knowledge priesthood happiness everything he sought now is asked to sacrifice and i often think about all of the law moses animal sacrifices it wasn't a barbecue it was meant to be you'd sacrifice your best sheep your the firstlings your you know your purest doves you know, or or bring the best of your flock, uh, you know, grains and fruits, whatever. There are many methods to sacrifice, but it was intended to be the best. It wasn't intended to be your excess, your leftover. What? Yeah, find whatever's in the pantry, bring that over, just give it to the bishop. You know, it was supposed to because it was supposed to take us to a place where it hurt. Right. Like it was a sacrifice, and we often think a sacrifice as uh, just Take something and now throw it away. Or take it and, and, and we're not going to use it. We're going to pass it up. No, it was sacrifice to to help us remember that the Savior being perfect is the ultimate sacrifice, you know. Um, and so I've, I've heard over the years many theories on, oh, well, someone needed to know what the Father went through and Abraham is that one person or, you know, all of these things. And I don't, that maybe, I, I don't know. But to Abraham, I think the with what I've looked in the scriptures and, and if I place myself there, it's kind of like the ultimate test of now in your journey, in what I have shown you, the Lord, where I have taken you, look at your entire life, look at the promises I've given you about stars and innumerable multitude of children. Will you trust me again? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of that, yeah, I will. Because I don't know this. Sometimes it may doesn't make sense, and it doesn't have to make sense. Sometimes it just we just have to take the experiences of how the Lord has treated us so far, and have faith on that. And I think in that aspect I can relate to this sacrifice, where sometimes the Lord asks of us something, and it's not known clearly how to get there, what's going to happen, or if it 100% makes sense. It requires a lot of faith, but drawing on the experiences of where he found me to where he brought me, I can say, yeah, I'll do it. I'll follow you. And I think in that moment, I think is where this sacrifice becomes really applicable to all of us. When we see where the Lord has taken us, all of the miracles in our lives, and then he asks us for one more. Well, can we say yes? You know, can we say, yes, I'll do it. Can we, like Moses, step into that river, the Red Sea, you know, maybe <laughs> a couple feet in and then wait for, for the Lord to do his thing. 
you know, the other part that I think about is how in this time, the culture was very different. The times we don't understand. I don't understand this first wife thing, second wife. All of that doesn't make sense to me. I don't like it. But I also know that my understanding of that is incomplete. I also like to also think that in those days, there was no 401k retirement plan. There wasn't nursing homes. There wasn't, you know, um, Medicaid and Medicare. Uh, there wasn't back braces for the old uh, Tylenol. You know, your children, I think, had a huge impact on the quality of life you had. Yeah. In your ability to die peacefully because you have people that are willing to take care of you, you know. And, and, and pass on. So I've, I've often been perplexed by the scripture, especially the Old Testament, a lot of concern over birthright, posterity, and those things, because I don't feel that weight in my current uh, life of, like, with all the technology and stuff we have. We don't think that way. But for them, but I do feel a weight to have a good job, to save, to have insurance. in I, I kind of try to liken those things to those concerns that they had. Right. What is their insurance? Where is their AAA, you know, phone number when when the camel dies? You know, all of it has to do in that in your family and having a lot of them. And they, they probably had more diseases and people die of a lot of weird things more than we do in our time, you know. Yeah. So for them, these concerns are very similar to healthcare, work, you know. Um, saving, being able to go on vacation, you know, all the things that concern us. I don't know that they were so different than what concerns them. It's just translated differently in their time and in their culture. Definitely. Of those things, you know? So. Yeah, I, I think, like you were saying, it was more a, a will you trust me again? And I think uh, there's a quote by Elder McConkie in he wrote a book called Promises Made to the Fathers. And he said, the context... Uh, for this passage is a testing or proving of Abraham rather than God tempting. The Lord told Abraham to take Isaac up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. Abraham believed God and knew that if he did offer the sacrifice, that God would raise Isaac from the dead, so that in Isaac his seed would flourish according to the promises. I, I never really thought of it that way either. That maybe Abraham was like, all right, I'm going to do it, and we're going to carry this out, and then the Lord will resurrect my son. Which would be a complete similitude to the sacrifice of the Savior who was killed. And it's interesting because Mount Moriah, which I believe is in Jerusalem now, and if I'm not wrong, has is not that far from where the Savior himself was crucified on Golgotha, uh, was a three-day journey back to their home in Beersheba, which is another parallel. You know, he, he went to go be sacrificed, and three days it took them three days to return back to their home. The same duration it took for the Lord after his crucifixion to be resurrected. And so these are all symbols of something to come. These people were aware of Christ and aware of what he would do and aware of his ministry and his sacrifice that would come, you know, 2,500 years in the future. They knew about that through Revelation. It wasn't something that they were completely oblivious to. So I think a lot of this stuff was also that, you know, I don't think it was like everyone, you have to know what the, what God went through or whatever. I think it was more like, this is what, this is why this is so important that you understand the gospel itself 
they understand why the Savior is doing this. My shout out to Sarah is mainly just a shout out to, you know, prophet wives in general. Think about Noah's wife as he's building a boat and she's like, I don't get revelation like you do. I'm just going with this because I believe that you're following what the Lord wants you to do. And a lot of times other other wives that are you know not really mentioned um, as getting the same revelation that their husbands, these, these prophets are getting. And they're kind of like, OK, yeah, let's let's do it. And they're with you. You know, Emma Smith, even who oftentimes was kind of like, wait, what? What? But went with a lot of it because she knew that her husband was the prophet. Mm-hmm. Then you see things like Sariah in the Book of Mormon, who even at times we get, I think, the best glimpse of what it might be like to be a wife of a prophet, where she's kind of like, um, I don't know about this. Are you sure? We're leaving our home, our comfortable home in Jerusalem. She even murmured a little bit. And it was kind of a, I, I think, just kind of an insight into there's this group of people that maybe aren't mentioned as much, um, but who had to also show just as much faith, if not more, because they didn't get revelation and communication with the Lord the way that their husbands did. Their husbands knowing that, going into that saying, hey, we got to build a boat. I'm going to spend the next you know, two years building an ark. You know, that's a difficult conversation to have. But then also it's difficult to say, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll be there to help you. And how many times there's parallels with that, that, you know, as a priesthood holder, as someone who's presiding over a family, I get revelation or I get an impression we should do something. And I bring it up to my wife and I say, hey, I think we should do this. We should pray about this together and receive revelation together. And you see that this wasn't just a one person thing. Yeah. You see that this is this is no doubt Abraham and, and Sarah sitting down at some point and saying, all right, let's get this revelation and make sure that we're on the right path together. I don't know. Like you said, it was a different time. Maybe it wasn't as as <laughs> as equal back then, but um, I can't what, imagine that they would be in the dark completely. One thing I've noticed that has been happening the last few years is even, for example, if we look on on the church website, almost every it almost feels weekly or there's always join us. For family discovery day, elder and sister Suarez to share an insight in the family. And before it was like, you know, elder and sister Irene, you know, um, uh, President Nelson and his wife, you know. Um, I think that's indicative in teaching us that there is more that just in the scripture, man is not without the woman and the woman's not without the man. And I think we are missing a lot of information on what these women's roles played in the scriptures, you know. Part of that is because of the pride and the vanity of men. Um, I look at it a lot like, you know, you look at President uh, Hinckley and his wife Marjorie. The way he spoke about her makes it sound like, although he's the flashlight, She's the battery that powers it, you know. Yep. Um, and in uh, in that and that's how it should be. So to your point, yeah, I think I think it was less uh, less than we were talking about. Uh, you mentioned how the the Lord chose to do this great miracle with Sariah, you know. Uh, it wasn't with Abraham; like she was the vessel for the miracle to occur.
Become an engaged learner. Immerse yourself in the scriptures to understand better Christ's mission and ministry. Know the doctrine of Christ so that you understand its power for your life. Internalize the truth that the atonement of Jesus Christ applies to you. Every time you plug in your phone, use it as a reminder to ask yourself if you have plugged into the most important source of spiritual power, prayer and scripture study, which will charge you with inspiration through the Holy Ghost. It will help you know the mind and will of the Lord to make the small but important daily choices that determine your direction. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come follow me. Thank you.